Welcome to this very special tribute edition of Songcraft. This is not the uh, kind of episode that we would normally do, but we felt that given current circumstances, it was important to take a moment and stop and spend some time reflecting on and celebrating some of the songwriters and composers that we have unfortunately lost uh, in recent days to the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, it's uh, as you're saying that I'm sitting there thinking not only is it the, not the kind of episode that we normally do, it's not the kind of episode that I like doing. <laughs> it's um, right. It's but it feels like very much in keeping or in character with with the type of thing that we do here, which is, you know, let people know about um, who these people are, um, what they've done, what they've contributed to the arts and to society. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's more than fitting to do this. Um, it's. What's kind of crazy about it is uh, it, we've talked about doing this for a week or so, and when you kind of stop because you're like, well, uh, there was one, one more name just got added, and so let's yeah. kind of hold off. And, and uh, I, I feel like if we just wait until all the names are added, then you know we're going to have a little bit of an unwieldy thing ahead of us. So that, you never know. We may be doing another one of these episodes in a month. I mean, I, I hope not. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We were, we were definitely in uncharted waters here. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, paying tribute is the right way to um, approach this. You know, I think we've all been to uh, memorial services where they say, well, we don't want this to be a, a sad occasion. We want it to be a celebration a, a, of this person's life. And um, even though, obviously, it is uh, very sad when, when people leave us here in the earthly sense, um, it is a time for reflection and, and looking back and appreciating um, what those people have left behind. So um, what we don't want to do is is to um, simply list a very depressing and, and dry kind of list of names of, of people whose lives this virus has claimed. Um, instead, what we want to do is to, to really look at their accomplishments and, and achievements and to uh, enjoy what they have brought to our lives and how their work as composers and, and songwriters and musicians has really um, added uh, a dimension to the human experience. So um, as much as possible, we want this to be a, a joint um, celebration with you, our listeners, as we kind of reflect back and, and talk about some of the, the music that is still here for us to enjoy. You know, and it, when you're saying that, it makes me think I could ask the question, is it appropriate to be funny while we're doing this? And then I asked myself, have we ever actually been funny? Um, no, my uh, father, as I've said before, refers to the beginning of our show as the uh, alternately as the Beavis and Butthead portion or the Wayne and Garth portion. Uh, and my wife refers to it as as uh, that's Scott and Paul's giggle time. So we have always <laughs> well, found ourselves uh, very entertaining, but I don't know that we've ever been funny. I think Beavis and Butthead are hilarious. And <laughs> I feel the same way about Wayne and Garth. So thank you, Mr. Bomar. <laughs> Uh, for your compliment, yeah. <laughs> but for our listeners who are accustomed to hearing us make uh, ridiculous puns, jokes, and asides, there may be some of those during this section as well. <laughs> we promise to be as unfunny as we always would. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we will be no more funny than usual, um, and if it's possible to be any less funny, then probably that will happen. Um, well, I, I'm going to start this off, and th this may, you know, I've, I've got probably one of the tougher names uh, in the list, um, but I'm going to give it my best. Arlus Mabele, um, who is a Congolese singer and composer known as the King of Sukus. Um, and that's a derivative of the French word secule. There's my accent for y'all. Uh, nice. It means Very to nice. shake. Um, and if you've ever watched um, like a Shakira video, then you know what it means to shake. Uh, when you're talking about uh, music, that's actually that that phrase is derived from Cuban music. Um, Shakira's Colombian, by the way. But uh, either way, um, Mabele sold over 10 million albums worldwide. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, I wish I had more personal experience of what I could say about him. I am not a, a huge fan of Congolese music. Um, but I will say, when you're talking about 10 million albums, you're talking about huge societal impact um and uh so i, I don't you, you may have more experience with uh, sukus music than i do oddly uh i do um 
I went to um, Cameroon. I know you've spent a, a good bit of time in Africa uh, yeah. yourself um, over in uh, East Africa. Uh, I spent time in Cameroon several years ago in, in West Africa and kind of fell in love with uh, the music when I was there. And when I came home, I got really uh, into this um, phase where I was searching out all this different um, African music and particularly Sukus music, which um, kind of resonated with me. I think it all kind of gelled one time when I was driving in the car and I heard um, this NPR piece where Robert Criscow was reviewing a compilation of music by this guy named Taboulet Rochereau. Um, and I had not heard um, that name before, but as soon as they started playing the music, I recognized... I went, oh, that sounds like those Paul Simon records from the oh, late wow. 80s. You know, the Graceland and, and Rhythm of the Saints, that really kind of like cascading uh, guitar sound. And then I went, wait a minute. Uh, Tabulé Rochereau was around a long time before Paul Simon. So maybe that doesn't sound like Paul Simon. Maybe Paul Simon uh, <laughs> got right. that stuff when he right. went down to Africa and, and recorded that stuff. So that boy, I mean, talk about an example of a songwriter and composer, you know, meaning Paul Simon, um, taking some influences from other cultures and introducing them in a new context. Yeah. And sometimes I think people sort of uh, raise an eyebrow to that, like, well, was that cultural appropriation? But in this case, it was cultural introduction without right. me realizing it, that, you know, I was kind of picking up on these Sukus influences as a kid. So, um, you know, listening to Paul Simon uh, records as a kid and going to Cameroon and then happening upon this NPR piece got me like really fired up about uh, Sukus music. And I bought especially Sukus guitar. I just love the sound of that. Um, and, and so I bought a bunch of uh, Sukus CDs. And uh, to this day, that's probably my only like really world music uh venture as a as a music fan um but it's also something that you hear in vampire weekends music like they kind of have adapted that sort of uh guitar sound as well yeah uh and i just there's just something about that sound i just love it and i um was actually not even familiar uh, with this particular artist, though he's known as the King of Sukus, because there's a ton of Sukus musicians out there. Um, but uh, when I heard that he had passed, and, and maybe one of the first uh, musicians or composers who uh, who passed away from COVID-19, it just sort of brought a flood of of appreciation back uh, yeah. for me for for all that music that you know that genre that I've really. Um, you know, appreciate it. guarantee you that Sting is probably a fan of Sukus music um, as a purveyor of all things world music. I'm, I'm sure Peter Gabriel probably is. Sting may not like it because it's not 4,000 years old. Um, <laughs> I think he tends to gravitate towards things um, that are way... There's, no, way, there's yeah. no castle. Right. It needs to be able to be played on a, on a hollowed out bone for uh, Sting to be super into it. Um, and I did doze I off just, for just a second when you said NPR, but I came right back and heard most of everything <laughs> that you said. <laughs> I just thought when I when I said I, I wasn't familiar with this particular artist, but the genre, I immediately thought of uh, Spinal Tap <laughs> when they go <laughs> when they go to play at the military base, and the and the guy uh, is showing them around, Lillard, and he right. goes. Well, yeah, Fred Willard. We're we're fans of uh, of your music, not fans. not necessarily you guys, but the whole <laughs> rock and roll genre. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Big fan of your music. Um, so uh, a shout out and uh, a tribute to Arlus Mabele again. I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, well, uh, another composer that we have unfortunately lost in recent days is Mike Longo. 
who um, kind of gained notoriety as a sideman playing piano with uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Um, but he went on to record well over a, a dozen albums of his own stuff as a, as a performer and, and also a composer. Mike passed away on March 23rd in New York. He was 83 years old. Um, and I discovered that back in the 70s, he actually published a nine-part lecture series called Systematic Harmonic Substitution. <laughs> uh, just hearing that phrase makes me feel stupid. Um, <laughs> systematic Harmonic right. Substitution. I, Okay. Um, I don't think you should be allowed to say that unless you can tell me what it means. So yeah, I I I don't know what that means, and I I suddenly feel like maybe I actually don't know anything about music. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, just saying, just saying that, and knowing that it was part of a nine-part lecture series lets me know that we lost a much smarter man than I. Um, yes. And that Mike Longo knew what he was talking about. I'd actually, I'd actually like to check that out and find out what that means because it sounds like it might be fascinating. So we mentioned uh, a moment ago um, about uh, me having gone to Cameroon, um, which uh, brings up the next artist in our list that we're paying tribute to, which is Manu Dibango, um, who was a Cameroonian jazz musician, best known for his 1972 single, Soul Makosa. And uh, Paul, I think Makosa might actually uh, sound familiar to you. It actually sounds like one of those sort of pseudo-African words that you might hear in like The Lion King or like a Michael Jackson song when he's saying <laughs> syllables. Um, yes, Michael Jackson, want to be starting something specifically. Oh, Mama say Oh, Mama Kosa. Really? Yeah. In fact, uh, there was a lawsuit over it um, <laughs> because... Uh, <laughs> Basically, that little tagline is is at the uh, beginning of the Manu Dibango song, and uh, Michael Jackson uh, lifted it, and um, wow. there was a yeah, there was a um, a lawsuit which I, I think wound up being settled out of court because I believe that that uh, phrase actually even predates Manu Dibango, so it is a uh, <laughs> kind of like the blues. Uh, uh, there's a heavily borrowed form that right. found its way into various permutations, and it you, was hard to prove. You mean the phrase uh, "woke up this morning"? Yeah, kind of like that. Kind of <laughs> like that. It's the Cameroonian "woke up this morning." <laughs> wow. Um, well, um, I hope nobody sued Michael over the following line in that song where he says, "I'm a vegetable." Um, I feel like maybe the <laughs> Agricultural Association of America might have something to say about that. The the Farm Aid people were not pleased. <laughs> yeah, that's why Michael never played Farm Aid. Exactly. Um, <laughs> he, he would have been an so, absolute shoe-in for that lineup. <laughs> very heartland, very rootsy. Yeah. Um, Manu Dibango, I actually have uh, a couple of uh, of CDs um, that that he released from my from my African music period that we talked about. <laughs> uh, apparently, this guy released like sixty five or seventy albums over the course of his life, which is Jeez. insane. Um, but he had started out as a member of a very influential group uh, called African Jazz, which also included Tabule Rochereau, which I, who I talked about earlier. Um, but uh, he, he made it big in the UK uh, in later years. He had kind of a disco hit called Big Blow on Island Records, um, and he was actually um, nominated for a couple Grammys for uh, Soul Makosa. Um, so, yeah, Makosa means dance, by the way, in the uh, native Cameroonian language of oh. Douala, which is also the name of a town that I've been to, or a city, really. Um, and if you if you really want to get a sense of Manu Dibango's influence on popular music, you can listen to uh, his Soul Makosa next to Cool and the Gang's Jungle Boogie, and you'll see where this, you know, incredibly prolific saxophone player and composer kind of made his mark, not just in jazz, but also in, uh, in popular music. Um, but he died on, uh, on March 24th, uh, in Paris, actually, he was 86 years old.
feel like your your connection to African music is something I've known you for uh, probably 30 years now, and uh, I'm learning something new about you every day. Uh, I, I didn't realize that you even had an African music period. Um, but it does explain why I tend to wear the vibrantly colored matching shirt and pants all the time. Man, everything is finally falling together. <laughs> um, exactly. Now you get me. <laughs> Um, you know, the next name uh, on our list is someone that, that kind of uh, hits a little closer to home for, for me and probably for both of us, having grown up in Nashville. The name Joe Diffie uh, was one that, that we heard all the time. I mean, particularly in the 90s, uh, country kind of had a, a real boom. Um, and uh, Joe Diffie was a huge part of that Grammy winner. Um, between 1990 and 2000, the guy had 15 top five hits on the country chart. Um, wow. Know, I remember that song. I'm going to find me a new way to light up an old flame. Um, I was not yeah. a big uh, country music fan uh, at, at the time, um, but those were songs that you couldn't get away from. Honky Tonk Attitude. You know, he was also a writer on hits for other artists. You know, There Goes My Heart Again for Holly Dunn. And I literally have said the phrase, my give a damn's busted, um, the, which <laughs> is the name of the song that he wrote for Jody Messina. Sorry, nothing. Those are things that even beyond music sort of, for me, enter the uh, the public uh, consciousness. It's sort of unrelated. My, yeah. my kid came to me the other day and said, here's a quarter. And I was like, call someone who cares. Um, <laughs> Travis Tritt. Uh, did she laugh? Still did us, she totally thankfully. get it at age five? Oh, she totally did. She was like, dad, that was on point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's sad to see uh, the passing of Joe Diffie. Uh, there were a lot of people that, that you and I both knew from school um, people were posting and, and it seemed like kind of like one of those shared experiences um, that this was someone that was kind of like a little close to our community. Yeah, for sure. Um, he actually announced that he'd tested positive on March 27th and then died two days later, March 29th in Nashville. He was, you know, 61 years old, which at the time we first became aware of Joe Diffie probably sounded pretty old. Yeah. Uh, and today... Uh, that does not sound very old. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely, uh, uh, a relatively young guy to, uh, to have passed away and, and, uh, definitely, uh, sorry to, to have heard about that. Yeah. So the next person, uh, that we wanted to recognize is Alan Merrill. And, um, though he was an American, Alan was actually the co-founder of a London based band, um, called the Arrows that formed in 1974. That was a, a trio that uh, he founded there with another American guy and, and a British guy um, on drums. And uh, they were produced by Mickey Most, who um, produced a lot of legendary records, worked with Donovan uh, a good bit. And we had talked about him back when we uh, had an episode with, uh, with Donovan. Um, the Arrows are not nearly as well remembered as... Uh, one of their songs is and that song is I Love Rock and Roll oh, yeah. um, which was covered by Joan Jett in 1982 became a number one hit huge probably the biggest thing that Joan Jett has had you know just yeah. massive uh, hit at the time so um, even though Alan was a was a performer um, and musician he wound up his lasting legacy really became songwriter uh, with the cover of that kind of now iconic uh, 80s anthem Yeah, that is one of those songs. It's funny, man. We talk about this all the time. Uh, songs that seem like they were just always a part of the atmosphere. Um, and I Love yeah. Rock and Roll certainly is one of those. You know, just the, the thought of someone writing it, you go, wait, oh, wait, someone had to sit down and, and start with a blank piece of paper and write that. It didn't just happen. Because <laughs> it just yeah. seems like just, you know, one of those songs. So um, it, it the, the, one of the, you know, the few, if you can talk about any positives in these type of situations, is that 
you know, these things do drive you back to go listen to the music. And, and they, they usually send me to go kind of reappreciate these songs again when I see them in headlines and articles. I Love Rock and Roll is not a song that I would sit around and say, like, man, that's a formative song for me. Um, but when you do take a moment to consider it, you think, what a, what a big song, what an important song, what a great song. I remember even when that song came out, kind of having this like unconscious sense that it was a cover song, even though I was a kid. But right. I... I thought it must have been a cover song from like the 50s you know right. i i thought it must have been like an old like you know uh uh like i don't care what people say rock and roll is here to stay kind of song you know like right. from from back in the day um which kind of speaks to uh it's timelessness because even though i was just a dumb kid who didn't know anything about uh songs or songwriters i still kind of had a sense that like this song sort of transcended just that recording. By the way, is it you know there's all these songs about men talking about underage women. Is this the the only one that I can think of where Joan Jett talks about you know the the boy who could couldn't have been more than seventeen? I think it says. Yeah. I can't think of another example where a female sings about um, a teenage boy. Yeah, uh, I I have not uh, looked into that matter, but uh, that's a good point. Yeah. I think. Uh, I think you might be onto something there. That's um, what I'm here for. And, and probably best that we have, uh, as a society, moved on from the uh, strange uh, underage dalliances that were <laughs> celebrated frequently in rock music back uh, up up into the 90s, I yeah. think. But anyway, Alan Merrill, writer of I Love Rock and Roll, um, he died March 29th in New York, and, uh, and he was 69 years old. All right, well, the next name um, that we want to give tribute to is Wallace Roney. Uh, Wallace Roney was a jazz trumpeter um, who took lessons from Dizzy Gillespie, um, if you've heard that name. Uh, also studied with <laughs> Miles Davis, who he was personally mentored by. Um, so you're talking about a pretty serious jazz lineage, uh, you know, finding itself there in Wallace Roney. Um, his big break came when he replaced Terrence Blanchard in a group called Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. Put up 20 albums of his own, also did a ton of recording as a sideman. Um, and, you know, you and I are not uh, necessarily first-tier jazz aficionados, um, but it doesn't take more than a quick look through that resume to realize that that, that was a, uh, a real player in the jazz community. I think we would be top-tier jazz aficionados if my energy weren't all directed to Sukus music, as we've recently <laughs> learned. Yeah, um, so uh, it's just a matter of bandwidth, you know, honestly. Um, yeah. Nice pun <laughs> but, there with uh, bandwidth. Yeah, <laughs> you like that? Yeah. Um, Apparently, Wallace Roney was like the only guy that was ever like personally taught and mentored by Miles Davis. So, I mean, that's that's pretty huge. Um, He died uh, in New York on March 31st and uh, he was only 59 years old. So definitely like Joe Diffie, uh, his his life was was cut short by this virus. So uh, very uh, unfortunate to uh, have learned about his passing. Another jazz musician who, in some way, I think has had an impact on everyone who has even a cursory knowledge of jazz music um, that we lost is Ellis Marsalis. And uh, Ellis was a, a piano player. He was a composer. Most importantly, I think he was an educator. Um, and he was really the, the patriarch of uh, a musical family. You know, four of his six sons went into music and and Branford uh, Marsalis and Wynton Marsalis are are definitely the two uh, best known uh, of his kids but Ellis um, was a teacher at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts and he taught some pretty uh, heavy hitting folks you mentioned um, you know that uh, that Wallace Roney was in Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and and he replaced Terrence Blanchard well Terrence Blanchard was uh, a, a student of Ellis Marsalis and even if 
people aren't familiar with with Terrence Blanchard's work as a jazz musician, you've definitely heard his music in films. He's composed mm -hmm. a ton of of uh, of film music. Um, Harry Connick Jr. was also a student of uh, Ellis Marsalis's. Um, but in addition to being an educator and you know the patriarch of this great jazz family, um, Ellis actually. Um, released about 20 albums uh, of his own um, throughout his career. Um, and actually, about 10 years ago, I bought an album called Music Redeems uh, that was recorded by the Marsalis family. And it was this live recording um, of, <clears throat> of, of Ellis and his sons, and it was uh, a benefit for the Ellis Marsalis Center for Music, which was um, kind of being launched around that time. And... The album, and I and I forgot now why I bought it because you know I, I'm not a, a huge jazz guy. I, I appreciate jazz, and I have some you know jazz in my collection. But somebody had told me about this record, so I got it. Um, and there's some great you know Ellis Marsalis originals on there, um, songs like After and Syndrome. But, but the thing on this record that blew my mind was the first track, which was a cover of Charlie Parker's Donna Lee that included uh, this like dueling solos. One was Wynton Marsalis playing trumpet and the other one was Jason Marsalis who was whistling. What? I, I didn't know there was such a thing as like jazz whistling. <laughs> this guy is like doing <laughs> improvisational whistling solos and then doing like doubling and then harmony type stuff along with his brother went on trumpet with wow. his like insane whistling solo. The whole thing is just a joyous tribute to Ellis and to his legacy. And there's never been a more like perfectly packaged uh, way to simply go and appreciate Ellis Marsalis and his legacy than to go and listen to that to that record. Um, it, it's it's just a lot of fun. It reminds you what an important uh, man he was as yeah. a as a composer and pianist and influential figure on the New Orleans jazz scene. Um, so very, very cool. I'm going to highly recommend people check that one out. I actually saw Ellis Marsalis play at the Chicago Jazz Festival back in, I think it was 97, hmm. which was fantastic. Um, just super incredible out in Grant Park under the stars, listening to this amazing music. Um, yeah, so Ellis uh, Marsalis died uh, on April 1st in New Orleans, and he was uh, 85 years old. And, and as evidenced by the names that we've mentioned thus far. Uh, COVID-19 has really hit the jazz community uh, particularly hard for, for whatever reason. Um, and the same day that we lost Ellis, we also lost guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli. Um, and he was 94 years old. He, he died in New Jersey. And, and even though he wasn't really known as a composer, he was a fabulous musician, total fixture on, on the jazz scene for many years. Um, and uh, again, just, man, that, that genre has, has particularly um, taken a real hit yeah. uh, during this whole thing. Pointing out another musician um, that, to me, was, was a bit closer to home um, when I found out that Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne had passed away. I just kind of stopped in my tracks. Yeah. Um, number one, just because of his youth, 52 years old. Um, I mean, I think everybody... Uh, at least of a certain age, remembers the song Stacy's Mom uh, by Fountains of Wayne. It was a, a giant hit, uh, one of those kind of huge melodies in, in a, kind of a post-Weezer pop-punk world. Um, but, you know, Fountains of Wayne was like a a, a really great power-pop band um, 
a great melody writer and and you may not know the fact that you heard uh, Adam's music in other places too um, the guy was a three-time Emmy winner for his work with you know music on television um, and this the song and the film that thing you do song um, is an incredible song. I actually know people that are writers and producers now that point to that song in the movie, That Thing You Do, as kind of their epiphany moment that says, I want to make music. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. I haven't heard that about too many you know, movie songs, um, but it was such a great melody, such a catchy feeling song, and that's what Adam did so, so well. The thing about that film, uh, That Thing You Do, is I have heard... Um, artists who um, were kind of coming up in the 60s talk about the experience and relate it to that film and say, man, that movie just gets it right. Um, Chris Hillman uh, from The Birds, who has been a guest on our show before, um, he and I were talking not too long ago specifically about that movie and uh and he was saying man they just they really captured what it felt like for us yeah. as young kids kind of caught up in this thing and stumbling into like the you know this whole new world of of rock music but what impresses me about adam is you know he's given the assignment of man you've got to write a song for a film that sounds like a 60s one-hit wonder um, but the concept of the film is that this song is a complete sensation that everybody loves it because it's catchy and great. Yeah. You know, I mean, talk about uh, having to write within, you know, something that within an era that yeah. also is fantastic and everybody wants to sing it. I mean, that's a tough assignment. Yeah. It's like you need to go right. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think honestly, as, as close as you could come the guy did it if, if that song had come out at the time i think it would have been a hit so w well done adam schlesinger uh and uh another name that that we'll miss yeah i think you actually um will be surprised i was a little surprised at myself because i have heard the title stacy's mom uh and and we you know associate with fountains of wayne and when i learned that adam had passed away the other day i i was actually uh more familiar with him as the that thing you do guy and so i went to youtube and looked up stacy's mom somehow even though i know how successful that song was i had not heard it until last week what and i don't I, yeah i know i don't know how that's possible uh it could be that you were listening to a cameroonian whistling <laughs> record instead <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> it could be that you were in the bowels of a library pouring over some dust-covered tome. Um, it could have, yeah. I mean, I think that, I, you know you know why you didn't see it? It was on MTV every day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did listen to it, and you're right. It's a great power pop yeah. uh, song. I will always uh, remember Adam uh, associating with that thing you do, which is one of those songs that I find myself just kind of having it pop in my head, and I'm just singing while doing chores or whatever uh, to this day. Um, so great guy, um, great writer, just incredibly prolific behind the scenes. Um, and we lost him on April 1st uh, in New York, and he was only 52 years old. Well, another one that, that hits close to home is uh, John Prine, 
who is one of Rolling Stone magazine's 100 greatest songwriters of all time. John is someone that um, we actually had had some conversations in the past about having him as a guest on Songcraft and the scheduling uh, didn't work out at the final moment and kind of always intended to circle back on that one and make sure that we could have a conversation uh, with John on the show and um, very sad to learn that that will not be possible now. Yeah. Um, John was an incredible singer-songwriter. His self-titled debut album in 1971 included a ton of instant classics like Illegal Smile, Hello in There, Sam Stone, Paradise, Angel from Montgomery, which Bonnie Raitt later did an incredible duet with him on. Um, and, and that was just his first album. <laughs> he came out of the gate. Uh, I think Chris Christopherson was an early champion of John's and, and, and kind of waved the banner that helped get his career started. Um, but legend has it that John was showing up to... Um, like open mic nights and playing songs like Angel from Montgomery and Hello in there. And, and I once heard Billy Bob Thornton say that John Prine had told him that Hello in there was the first song that John had ever written, which is, it's like this guy just emerged fully formed uh, with songs that sounded like the craftsmanship Good of someone night. who had been at it for 30 years, you know. You know that old trees just grow stronger and old rivers grow wilder every day old people just grow lonesome waiting for someone to say hello in So, yeah, you just look at his first album alone and all the classics and then consider that after that, he released about 20 albums of, of even more stuff. Great um, craftsman of, of songwriting and uh, highly respected and will certainly be missed. Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of those names that kind of looms large, I mean, I think, you know, in the songwriting world, if you were going to construct a Mount Rushmore, um, at least of, of his genre, um, you might have to put john's face up there um we we might yeah. be doing uh a tribute episode were he the only name to have passed from coronavirus yeah. um right and you yeah. know e even beyond that sort of kind of uh you know inside stuff that that a lot of songwriters know about he had a lot of real commercial success um you know number one hits uh george Strait, i just want to dance with you um don williams love is on a roll um so um one of those guys who was a writer's writer, but also found his way dominating radio as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we lost him on April 7th in Nashville at age 73. Um, and if I remember correctly, though, Scott, um, even, you know, John surviving to the length that he did, that he, he narrowly missed um, kind of a, a potentially dangerous encounter that involved you some years ago. <laughs> Uh, yes, that is true. Uh, one of, uh, one of my, uh, classic stories is the time I almost ran over John Prine, Jeez. um, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I grew up in Nashville as, uh, if you, uh, don't know that by now, then you've not been listening to our show at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Paul and I both grew up in Nashville. I grew up in an area of town called Green Hills. And um, in the middle of Green Hills is a Kroger shopping center. And um, there's a, a main street uh, called Hillsborough Road. And if you want to go to Kroger, then you can go up Hillsborough Road and then turn down a side street and work your way over to, to Kroger. But as any good Green Hillsian knows... Um, you can cut through the parking lot of this little shopping center that kind of curves around behind the shopping center. And then there's a, an exit from the back of yeah. the shopping center 
that will allow you to to sort of fast track your way right over to Kroger. And if you're like 17, well, you can go through that at like 80 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is exactly what I was doing when I was 17. Um, I was cutting through that very shopping center. Um, there was a famous Nashville bookstore called Davis Kid oh, Booksellers yeah. that, that inhabited that building at the time. And they had an entrance in the front and the back. Well, John Prine... Um, being the literary-minded guy that he was, was exiting the back of Davis Kid, And he was stepping off the curb right around the time I came roaring around the corner, uh, obviously in a huge hurry to, to get to Kroger and pick up whatever thing it was my mom told me to go get from the store so she could finish cooking dinner. Um, and uh, I come around the corner, and John Prine stepping off the curb, and I just, like, stand on the brakes and I didn't realize it was John Prine, right? I just see there's a, a guy yeah. about to step off the curb. I just slam on the brakes and this guy like turns and faces directly. And I came to a stop where his palms like reached out and hit the, the, the top of my hood. Good Lord. Like, my, my car stopped that close and, and you know, I'm like, Oh my gosh. And, and so the guy looks up and he just has a look of, surprise you know in his eyes because he didn't see me coming and I and that's when I realized oh my gosh that's John Prine and uh so I kind of gave a sheepish uh wave and he uh shook his head he was not uh happy no um but to his credit, he did not uh, punch his fist through my window and drag me out th across the shards of glass and beat me senseless on the pavement, which probably would have been justified yeah. uh, in that moment after the uh, the scare that I gave him. I, I can't believe that you sort of like mortally endangered one of the world's greatest songwriters in full view of the Bluebird Cafe. <laughs> because that's what's pretty much right across the street from where Davis Kidd uh, used to be, R.I.P. Yeah. Um, and well, you know, that's actually why uh, I participate in this podcast at all. This is my penance uh, for for that incident is that I now have to spend the rest of my life paying tribute <laughs> to great songwriters after having committed this terrible act right in view of the Bluebird Cafe. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that, you know, that that's that's how it is. Thankfully for you. Thankfully for Mr. Prine, that was avoided. Um, he was able to give us a couple more decades of great music um, and we mourn his loss today. Yeah, yeah, he is one that uh, that we're going to miss for sure. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lay? Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train is all it away. Um, I don't know if people saw the Saturday Night Live um uh, SNL at home, I think they called it, that aired uh, this past weekend. Um, but uh, during that broadcast, they did a tribute to Hal Wilner. And uh, Hal Wilner is a record producer, well-known for doing a lot of tribute albums, um, who became the sketch music producer of Saturday Night Live in 1980. And that meant that he was the guy who was in charge of picking music for all of the sketches. And if you think about... Um, the number of sketches that yeah. Saturday Night Live has put Jeez. out since 1980 that have become part of the fabric of like our cultural references. Um, and, you know, if you remove the music from any TV show or film or anything, it suddenly everything's just dead and it doesn't work. Right. Um, that's true for comedy, you know, just as much, if not more. And so this is one of those guys who was highly influential as a um, producer and sometime composer um, in kind of creating subconsciously. Um, the the cues that we have laughed to the the things that have told us kind of what's funny and and uh, have informed kind of the the way that you know the way that we laugh yeah. uh, through Saturday Night Live, which has been a you know Saturday Night Live is not always consistent in its uh, funniness, but you can't deny that it has been a consistent presence in kind of informing American humor. And this is a guy who was a you know unsung hero of of uh, the music that that all of those sketches included. Isn't it amazing how much music we take for granted? Oh yeah. You know, you, you think about, you know, not only the things that, you know, underscore 
like you said, those things in, in either a scary movie or, or something else that provides that sort of tension or that drama. Um, but to, to think about the music on Saturday Night Live and not just that amazing band that opens and closes the show, but the, the songs that propel the sketches along um, and how many yeah. of those have become uh, the sort of part of our cultural language. And somebody has to sit and write those songs. Exactly. And you know what's crazy about SNL is that I think they meet on Monday uh, to start going over sketch ideas and pulling things together. And then they go live on Saturday. I mean, everything happens in, you know, this like crucible of intense pressure. Um, And uh, it's amazing to think that that anybody could even function creatively in that role for a year, much less, you know, doing it since 1980. So um, definitely a huge loss to Saturday Night Live in the music world uh, when Hal Wilner passed away from complications related to COVID-19 on April 7th uh, in, of course, New York, and he was uh, 64 years old. Well, that kind of wraps up, um, you know, the the current list of the writers that we've lost um, to the coronavirus. I mean, I, I, I think it also bears mentioning that we've lost some some prominent names, not to the virus, um, but still, you know, some devastating losses nonetheless. I mean, Kenny Rogers, uh, just such a huge part of, of country and pop music for such a long time. Then um, McCoy Tyner, a uh, piano player with John Coltrane, a, a five-time Grammy winner himself. Um, you know, uh, Jan Howard, uh, who had some hits for Kitty Wells, Connie Smith, um, duets with Bill Anderson. Um, and then, of course, a name that was kind of near and dear to us, um, not only as fans, but as interviewers here, um, Bill Withers. Yeah, man. Uh, Bill Withers was one of the fairly early interviews that we were able to to land on Songcraft. And actually, I think that might have been the first interview where it almost surprised us that we landed it <laughs> and we kind of went, Oh, we're, we're really, we're really doing this. We're actually doing a podcast about songwriters and, uh, and, and we're going to be talking to some people that, uh, that we've been in all of, uh, yeah. as, as fans. Um, and yeah, I think that, uh, Bill Withers was an interesting guy because a lot of people that we talked to are like promoting something, you know, that maybe they've got a new album out or, you know, but Bill Withers had retired from, uh, from the, uh, music industry years before we interviewed him. And, uh, I think if we could go back to, uh, Joe Diffie for a minute and, uh, the song, my give a damn's busted, uh, not a bad description of of Bill Withers <laughs> at that stage. Yeah, um, you know, people will often ask me, "Hey, what's what's your favorite interview you've ever done?" Um, and and that that changes from time to time. But you know, oftentimes my answer would be Bill Withers. Um, and then yeah. sometimes people will ask, "What's the hardest interview you've ever done?" And I'd say Bill Withers, um, <laughs> because Bill. <laughs> It was tough, man. And uh, I'll, I'll tell people, and, I, and I'll tell our listeners now, if you haven't heard it, if you want to listen to it and just kind of listen to somebody kick us around for an hour, <laughs> it's it's pretty entertaining. Um, and I, I, I walked away with uh, with kind of a newfound respect for, for Bill. I mean, you talk about somebody that just tells it like it is. Um, yep. he, he actually was forthcoming and, and talkative. He just didn't really buy into his own mythology. And when, when you come down to it, I think that's actually a really admirable quality um, that yeah. that the sort of, uh, you know, vaunted nature of the Bill Withers name just to him. He's like, hey, I'm just a guy. Yeah. And I remember uh, I remember asking him, I said something about. Uh, so what, what were you thinking when when you wrote the, such and such song? And he goes, oh, I was thinking about writing the song. Have you found a way to uh, write a song and think about something else at the same time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, most people just don't answer interview right. questions like that because, you know, but it's like, it was kind of a dumb question. I mean, or, <laughs> so. I, I, there was one thing we asked, you know, and it's a, it a very typical question of us, you know, and he goes, I don't know, man, it was 40 years ago. And I was like, I got, I got no response for that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of made me laugh yeah. and think like, man, 
does anybody remember what happened 40 years ago? Uh, is, is Bill the only one telling the truth here? But uh, yeah, I don't remember what happened 40 minutes ago. I have some vague <laughs> memory of Sukhus music, but that's about it. Exactly. Uh, uh, now that that's my only memory from today is that you eat a ton of couscous. <laughs> And that there is such thing as exactly. a jazz whistling solo. I, I've I've got some homework <laughs> to do uh, after we leave today. That's the uh, that's the big takeaway. That's the takeaway. Well, speaking of of eating a ton of couscous, uh, my uh, grocery delivery. Now that we can't go to the store uh, very easily these days, uh, my grocery delivery is arriving now. Okay. Uh, and so you know, since most of our uh, world these days is uh, spent like wiping down the food that the grocery has delivered and uh, washing hands and cleaning surfaces I guess uh, we'll have to uh, put a pin in this and I'm hoping as you said at the top that this will be our one and only tribute episode to the writers and composers whose lives uh, have been claimed by coronavirus because yeah. we don't want to see any more of that and uh, and i'm hoping for brighter days ahead yeah that that would be great i mean i i love talking to you i love talking about music i just don't love talking about this part yeah exactly. so um let's let's hope that uh let's hope everybody's staying safe out there um staying smart um, and those who um, are ill, we you know hope and pray for for the best for you, and um, that we'll we'll see the other side of this before too long. Absolutely, and in the meantime, we uh, are still going strong with our regular Songcraft episodes, having some great remote conversations with some inspiring songwriters and we're going to continue to bring you that check out our current episode with jesse alexander who is a cma and acm song of the year winner for the song i drive your truck but also a fantastic uh singer-songwriter in her own right who's got a great new album out and uh, up next we've got a really cool conversation with the legendary Peter Frampton so yeah. uh, even in the midst of uh, all the bad news and, uh, and and all the bummers that we're facing these days um, as a result of this uh, global pandemic um, we still want to do our part to bring some some light and uh, and some hope and uh, just give folks an opportunity to maybe take their minds off of the bad news yeah. for a while and enjoy these conversations with some of these folks. So be sure to uh, to keep checking out those episodes and we sure appreciate all of your uh, support and we appreciate you for listening and we thank you for joining us in uh, wanting to really love and appreciate and celebrate the craft of songwriting. By the way, it, what's a bigger hit? Um, the Jesse Alexander's song, I Drive Your Truck, or Daniel Day-Lewis's song, I Drink Your Milkshake? <laughs> <laughs> I drive your truck. <laughs> and we'll leave it there. Sometimes in my life we all have pain, we all have sorrow, but if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me.